welcome to Thrivecast, a community podcast series where we are meeting growth and engineering leaders. Today we are meeting Dr. Elsa. I've been following her on LinkedIn, on, on various channels, and she is an erudite writer. I think uh, she's also at various startups. So maybe why don't we uh, get started with Elsa, if you could introduce yourself a little bit and maybe tell about you know, Soundhouse as well. Sure, happy to do so. And thank you for having me, firstly, of course. Um, so yeah, I've been working with in four startups and scale-ups for a little over 10 years um, and in both product roles and venture building roles. Um, so very familiar with the early stages, like zero to 100. Um, my first product role, I got stuck in a so-called feature factory. I think this is a term that people like to throw around nowadays, so I'll just follow suit. Um, I got very good at delivering features very fast, very focused on agile processes and Scrum and, and following all the rules and all that stuff. Um, but for me, something always itched a little bit because I was thinking, does this really move the needle? Does anybody really care about what we're doing? Um, and what happened at most of the startups that I was working with or for was that at some point we would hit a plateau, uh, we would stop growing. And so what, what we did was increase marketing spend, hire an amazing VP of sales and try to you know push that product out and get people to buy it, which didn't work. Um, and in the end of the day, I used to be the issue, the person who would raise their hand and say, maybe nobody really wants the product, right? Maybe we failed to build something that creates value. And so that's why I decided to focus on this entirely. How can we make customer value creation something that is predictable and something that is repeatable? Because it's this very fluffy concept of creating something that is of value to someone. So trying to make that more concrete um, so that I can help companies. So now I, I, I founded Sonderhaus, which is a collective of product and tech freelancers. We go in and we help companies do this uh, by making them product-led, as they say. So we set up processes of uh, customer discovery, experimentation, analytics, all the stuff you need to try to make something that customers want. And I, I see what you mean by the feature factory. I've been into that. I've been into you know the doghouse of the feature factories, if you will, at Microsoft, <laughs> where uh, we never actually talked to the customers for for years. You know, I came in, you know, with the program management and product management, you know, background at the very end of my career at Microsoft. Before that, I was a developer, you know, uh, an evangelist. I, I would go demos. I would go on roadshows. Those are the only times where we'll talk to customers. Beyond that, when we go back six months, eight months, 10 months time, no customer interaction at all. So I know what you mean by the feature factories. Um, and this is super common, right? This is like, when you look on LinkedIn, when you look at everything, it sounds like everybody has these amazing methodologies and everybody's using jobs to be done and ODI and everybody's experimenting and it's all amazing. But if you talk to real people on the ground, most companies actually don't operate like this at all, not even close. So it's a right. common thing. Yeah, you're right. In fact, even the uh, even their titles, you know, would be you know a PM or a product manager, if you will. Uh, but these days, you will see you know very variations of a product manager and a growth product manager, right? Which is which is fine, but between the product manager is the feature factory PM, if you will, and the growth PM is probably looking at the jobs to be done and things like that. Yeah. yeah. So maybe why don't we start on, on that particular note? Uh, I know you had a recent article, uh, probably a month 
back or so about the customer and audience interviews where you introduce the concept of the job to be done. Uh, I've been a big fanboy of some of your articles, as you can probably tell. We've read some of, some of them, at least most of them, at least in the last three, four months that you've published. Uh, you've touched upon job to be done. Uh, and could you tell us a little, bo- little bit about uh, why is that important? Uh, at what stage, um, you know, some of our audiences are also, of course, early stage startups and mid, uh, mid scale ups. If you could maybe walk through what is that framework about? Uh, and how can someone use it at, at even before, let's say, a product market fit or maybe even after product market fit? Uh, touch upon yeah. a little bit. Yeah, sure. So I, I, I indeed talk about jobs to be done quite a lot. Um, there are things I very much like about this framework. There are also things I think are not so perfect. Um, so I'm not 100% evangelist. Um, I think everybody's talking about jobs to be done right now, right? This is the new term. We all dropped Scrum. Scrum is now in the doghouse, and now we're all talking about jobs to be done. Um, But I think most people are not using it properly um, because it is actually quite hard, and this is kind of my my issue with it. Um, So firstly, what do I like about it? I like that it gives a very good lens how to look at customers. Um, because this is a, a key mistake that I see a lot of companies make is that they need to, everybody tells them you need to niche down. You need to pick a narrow target audience, um, which most of most of first-time founders don't do. They want to stay broad, right? First mistake. But some people say, okay, you tell me to niche down, let me niche down. Um, and then they need to describe that target audience and they go for demographics usually. Um, or they go for thermographics but quite random without um um without too much reasoning right just because they have to pick something and i like that jobs to be done firstly gives you a very nice lens because it says look at people through the job to be be done so it's a target audience is a group of people who share the same job that they need to get done um i think we can go beyond it and say who also share the same challenges when they're trying to do that job ideally um, and you can narrow it down even more and say who also share the same values. But that's something that I would add on top. Um, what is also great, I think, about JTBD is that all departments look at the target audience in the same way. This is not just a product term. It's not just a marketing term. It works across the board. Um, so it helps you get rid of this stupid story, I think, that says like, oh, target audience segmentation is for marketing. Like, I think, no, it's like, it underpins the whole business model, right? If we don't agree on who it's for, I think we're gonna be in trouble. And so I like how Jobs To Be Done remedies that. So it gives you the right lens and it gives you this kind of cross-departmental alignment that I believe is so very necessary. Um, What I think is problematic is of course, it's a huge trend. We all like to throw the term around, um, but it's actually quite hard to get it right. I think for one reason, because of the semantics part of it, you have to formulate things in a very specific way. It's always like um, a verb plus context plus a, cl- a clarifier. So the typical example is my job is to listen to music while on the go. So there's always this kind of cadence to it. Um, which I understand from a um, intellectual standpoint, because it allows you to detect patterns more quickly because everything follows the same cadence. Um, But the problem is that I see in practice that people really struggle with kind of shoving things into this mold. And in order to do it, they take the responses from customer interviews and bend them, right? Because uh, 
people don't talk that way. Um, so yeah. as you try to shove what people actually told you into that cadence, into that mold, I worry about losing um, losing a lot of value and losing language market fit, as they say, right? So I, I like to use the exact words that my customers use, and it doesn't really allow you to do that. Um, so I like jobs to be done for a lot of reasons. Um, I also like the interviews, which I posted about um, the idea of asking non-leading questions. So, so of course, Customer interviews, I think, is the starting point to start learning, especially if you're in the early stages and you do not have a lot of quantitative data yet. Talk to people, right? This is like an excellent starting point, but talk to them in the right way. Because if they're if you're going to just pitch your solution and say, oh, do you like it? You're going to get a lot of thumbs up and it's not going to help you. And, and I like the jobs to be done questions, which are much more open and trying to get people to speak what's really in their minds without steering them. I think that's a great, uh, great definition that you said. And I, I'll maybe probably pick you know, a couple of them that you just mentioned. Uh, yeah, it's hard. There's a framework associated to it. There's a language pattern to it. Uh, I think in maybe the good old doghouse days, right? maybe at Google, Microsoft, Amazon, you'd go create a persona and you'd say, hey, here's a Sally. He's, she works at marketing. Yes. This is the job she's doing. You go ahead and list a bunch of things that she's potentially doing. What her typical day you know uh, at, at at work looks like and then you will say hey, these are the things that we could eliminate or we could go ahead and uh, maybe automate uh, or get her a little more productive on, on that particular front uh, and I think over time that's been diluted across that not many startups that we even also talk to they don't understand their customers in fact most of them are pitching to the investors I'm not sure whether that's the pattern that you see as well they, they talk to the investors and the investors are also about, hey, pick one or two personas. Don't pick too many personas. Uh, you know, take only, you know, a single persona that you would sell to and then stitch your story around it. So they get kind of, you know, jam-packed into that particular notion that even though their product might serve multiple personas, they try to, you know, jam it into one or two personas. And of course, you know, uh, the entire pitch that the, they do both to the customers and the investors apparently happen to be on, on that particular front. Uh, could you touch a little bit about the interviews that, that you just mentioned about and how do you use the job to be done framework as part of the interviews? I know you have a blog about it. We can actually, you know, put that as part of the show notes as well. Uh, but touch upon why are interviews important and, you know, and more importantly, um, is, uh, you know, uh, are, can you take the same kind of an interview pattern and apply it to an early stage startup where they're really seeking, uh, you know, customer logos, they're trying to find, you know, some customers to their places uh, or, or to use the product? Or does it also apply, you know, to slightly bigger startups yeah. where they have some customer bases? Can they use a similar framework for them to interview both the customer as well as the new users or the audiences that you might think about who might not be the customer? So customers and non-customers, could you use the same framework? Um, sorry, the la so there were a lot of questions back in there. So, <laughs> sorry for that. Uh, I might want to, uh, and I also, I would love to respond to the thing that you said about the multiple personas, because I think that's also really interesting. So let me start with the interviews and then I'd love to sure. go back there. Um, so I work with both. I work with very early stage companies who have zero customers, 
which makes customer interviews very difficult because there are no customers. Um, but of course, for that, there are audience interviews. So talking to prospects within your target audience. This only works if you are already clear about who your target audience is going to be, or if you have three, four, maybe five segments in mind that you think are good options. Because if you are going to start doing audience interviews with anybody, um, you will end up speaking to a very heterogeneous group um, and you will get results without any patterns, right? And you will learn nothing in the end. You can have 20 conversations with 20 completely different people who end up not falling in your target audience. So the results are without value. At the same time, in this early stage, it's not possible to pick the number one ideal customer profile that you're going to focus on because you have no learnings, right? It's just like guesswork, it's just assumptions. Um, so I'm always in this kind of medium stage. I'm saying, okay, don't go too broad. You you need to understand what you're testing, right? Who you're testing with, but also don't focus on one based on nothing because you haven't learned anything in the real world. So I actually work with startups, um, these super early stage startups to help them pick the top three to five um, ICPs or segments to focus their research on initially so that they can in a very structured approach, find out which one is the most interesting one. Um, so figure that out first. Who do you want to talk to? And then set up audience interviews where, of course, the questions are slightly different. Um, but you probably have a job in mind, right? You have an idea. You know what your idea applies to uh, and which job that's trying to uh, make possible or make easier. Um, so you start asking about that job and the challenges that they face um, when they go about that job and the alternatives that they're using, of course. So you understand what you're up against. Um, there's a bit more, but I think that's really the heart of it for me. And when it comes to the later stage companies, um, it depends very much on their style so far. Um, because I think in PLG, we talk a lot about self-serve um, and in some companies that, that means that there's more only a tech department and there isn't really customer service. So there haven't been any customer touch points, um, which makes it a bit harder to all of a sudden start talking to your customers because you come a bit out of nowhere. Um, and others, they have a big, they, they have also sales led motions or they have uh, product led sales on top uh, and they have strong customer service. So they're used to speaking to their customers. Um, either way, I would try to get them into a motion to start speaking to their customers more and also the product people, product engineering, design, this product trio that the, Teresa Torres describes, um, get them speaking to the customers as well. Um, and there I would recommend to start with your power users, um, which is mm -hmm. also a simple term, but there's a lot underneath it because what is a power user for your business, right? This is not so easy. Um, but the power users are, of course, the people who really like your product, who are using it, who are paying for it, who are, who've integrated it into their daily lives. These are the people you want to understand first, right? So these are like these maximum outliers. Who are they? What is the connective tissue between them? Uh, what do they love about your product? What is truly the core value? Cause it's probably not what you thought it was. How are they really using it in their day-to-day -day life? It's probably not how you thought they were. Um, so I find the, the power users extremely interesting because they can teach you who your ICP really is, right? It's just by looking at uh, what makes them up and what your core value really is, right? Like, so this influences everything. This influences your messaging strategy, but also your product strategy, your sales strategy. 
I think all of it should be tailored to these kind of people. And, and at the other end of the spe spectrum, there's the churned users. I find them also very, very exciting. I always like these extremes, churned and like lovers and haters, um, mm -hmm. because the haters are also very interesting to see, okay, why did they hate it? Are they a completely different group of people or is it actually a similar group? Um, so try to find patterns there as well so that you can maybe um, make sure you get higher quality leads in, right? So that people don't get disappointed within your product. And I think it's, it's a, no, by the way, I love some of the terms that you use, connected tissue. I'm going to use that sometime later. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, uh, I think you make a, you make a very good point around using of the job to job to be done kind of a framework, you know, both in the product as well as, you know, in, in the interviews, you know, and we've seen, you know, uh, we've, we've been talking to a lot of people, especially SaaS builders as well. And when they have their mock-ups, I uh, would love to understand, maybe pick your brain on that. So when they show up, say, hey, we would like to use, you know, some of these hardcore feature PMs, if you will, they want to put the job to be done right within the product itself. Uh, soon after the survey questions, after the onboarding, they would have this intense screen, but this would be a very exact replica of the job to be done that they would write on a piece of paper and they slap it on this particular page. And it looks very similar to, to the framework that you said. There's a verb to it, what needs to be done. And they put that as part of an intent screen. Uh, I've seen that trend a lot, you know, in, in you know, that hey, when they're putting up an intent screen, hey, these are the various things that you can do. Ah, uh, like this, right. Yeah, so that, you know, typically that's been referred now as the intent screen. So they would ask these questions, and this is very funny. Um, they'll say, hey, what kind of a job function are you? And say, okay, you are a marketer or you're a developer. If you're a developer, they would show up a different intent screen. If you're a marketer, you show a different intent screen, and that intent screen looks very similar to the to be the job to be done, and that's very confusing at that time because you know the marketer is like they don't speak that particular language, uh, or the developer they don't speak that language. They'll say, "What is that?" They click on various things, and they can never actually get the job done. You know, uh, instead, you know, uh, like what GitHub and GitLab did, they talked about the features. The moment after they came in, they showed very specific features to the personas that they were catering to rather than the job to be done. It's still the same intent screen, but focused on you know, features and capabilities rather than the job to be done. But I think uh, what helps there is again, customer interviews. Um, yeah. Because what I do is I, I steal the language of the customers, right? This is why I want to speak with them. Um, because if you speak with enough of them, you will understand the words that they use. And I think in these intent screens, it doesn't have to be features or capabilities or jobs to be done. It has to be just the words that they use to describe it, right? So, so sometimes you internally have a feature name that is totally not what anybody would call, call it in the real world. Um, so I think stay as close as possible to the language of your customers throughout the experience, right? From awareness to acquisition to retention, the whole time try to speak the way your customers do. So I would replicate that on the intent screens as well. Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. I know we'll run out of time very quickly. So, uh, you know, if you're okay, could we touch upon some rapid fire, you know, yes or no kind of a questions and see if that makes, uh, you know, if we can we can pick your brain a little more faster with that, right? You you are, you know, you're a ton of knowledge, right? So we'll pick up some, some of the niggets. Um, okay, so the question number one, do you think marketing qualified leads or MQL are they passe? Are they dead? Or are they still on? Might be passe. 
I think they and never what, really functioned very well. At least I've never seen it function very well. And what what does that replace now? What replaces that? PQL. Uh, PQL? In, 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 if we're talking about uh, product net growth, it's PQL. But I think okay. in sales-led, uh, there's the same issue, right? So that MQL, SQL handover was always problematic and, and with conflicting teams, with conflicting goals, um, not many organizations manage to to do that successfully. Okay, so I think you know. So you're favoring more PQLs on that front. Let me ask. Well, it depends uh, if you have a PLG. If that's your, it depends what what growth engine you're you're using. But if it's PLG, it's the PQLs. I okay. think it's it's much stronger. Maybe why don't we ask the second question towards that? Is PLG in? Uh, especially, would you recommend PLG as a first starting point for? pretty much all B2B startups. Uh, yeah, there are some some exceptions, defense, and wherever there are a lot of sales conversations, uh, you know, sure enough, you eliminate that, but is P PLG uh, a trend that every single startup can actually think about them as the first way to do a GTM? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, so I really don't think so. Firstly, PLG doesn't have to be for everybody. I think it's now a, a very... Uh, exciting term that we all like to throw around. And I think for some startups, it can work. Um, I think somebody wrote at some point, it's kind of like a samurai samurai sword. If you know how to wield it, it's great. If you do not, you could easily cut your arm off. Um, and most early stage startups that I work with, they need results quick. PLG takes a long time to build. PLG relies on there being a lot of users who get this flywheel spinning so that those users start to work as your sales engine and your marketing engine. They start to bring in other users. It takes time to grow that, right? It also takes time to understand which users should be in that flywheel, right? Um, PLG very much states it works if you know your ICP, if you know your personas, because if you want to give them a self-serve experience, it has to be tailored to these people. So you have to know all this stuff. When you're super early stage, how are you supposed to know? You have no learnings. Uh, and at the same point, you need results fast. You cannot, um, most of the times, they cannot really uh, wait that long until that critical mass of, of free users of users is reached. So most companies I work with start with product-led, and then as they mature, start to ease in the, the, the PLG movement as well. Okay. Maybe that brings to the next question. Uh, what's the first step? that a startup should take if they have decided to go PLG, what should they build first? What should, what capabilities they should have within their product to start enabling PLG, if you will? Analytics. <laughs> so I think step one is learning, right? Before you make changes, understand what you're doing. Um, so I think the number one thing is analytics. Um, they need to understand who they are serving and what these people are doing. Um, most companies I speak with maybe have some form of analytics, but it's not quite actionable. It's not so easy to get uh, the right metrics and, and be able to interpret them in the right way. So that's usually the first stumbling block. Um, getting PLG up and running Getting a free trial up and running is not that hard, right? Um, I know a lot of companies who just slap on a free trial and see if that works. Um, but there has to be a whole motion behind it, right? All of the leadership team needs to be bought in. Um, this free trial will only work if within that trial you show people the right stuff, you engage them in the right way, um, and that you can only do by understanding who they are. So I think it all starts by being able to measure. 
I think that's great. Maybe let me ask this, uh, you know, slightly uh, diametrically opposite way. Uh, should a company do PLG first and then SLG or SLG first and PLG? If they're more comfortable with SLG, should they start with SLG and then go to PLG? It depends so much on the industry. I think it's always so nice to have these clickbaity titles. Every company should do PLG. Every company should be like this. Every onboarding flow needs to be with gamification and all that stuff. That's not how the world works, right? There are different target audiences. There's different industries. Everybody ticks differently. So I think the only thing that is valid for every business is that you need to think about your target audience first and, and, and make your decisions based on what they are expecting and what, or not what they're expecting, but what might delight them, right? What might go above and beyond what they can imagine. Um, so sadly, no clear cut yes or no answer. That's great. So we are sadly out of time. Uh, we have a lot of, lot, I had a lot of questions in my mind as we were going to, but in the meantime, you know, for all the audience, uh, Dr. Elsa is a, you know, is, is probably an emblematic writer uh, around the space. She's touched upon so many areas, all the way from customer journeys, uh, to customer interviews, you know, PLG connotations you know, uh, apply a traditional customer acquisition approaches, you know, CAC, whole bunch of things that you'll find, you know, on her, on a sub stack that we can link, uh, link, uh, link later on. Thank you so much, Dr. Elsa. And I will probably see you around maybe in a, you know, in a follow-up uh, interview sometime later on a very specific top topic. Thank you again so much. We had a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Thank you. Okay.